0: Perhaps one of the longest periods of peace, relative peace I might add, this world has ever known, is what has been termed by historians the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You see, Rome was such a powerful empire that after it had sort of established itself and strategically distributed its military around the world where areas of resistance might rise, there came upon that part of the world a period of peace that lasted for more than 200 years. The Roman peace, a peace that was purchased through the, a rise to power of bloodshed and, and, uh, and strife. Now, there was a very special ceremony that... Um, that took place when Caesar Augustus had defeated Antony and Cleopatra in Egypt. Caesar Augustus was now going to preside over a new era of peace. And in order to let the empire know that there was this new era of peace, that uh, that his enemies had been defeated, uh, Antony and Cleopatra... Caesar Augustus initiated a very, very dramatic ceremony in Rome. You see, we have to go back quite a few years, over uh, 700 years prior to this, to the second king of Rome, um, Numa, Caesar, who had... had, inherited the kingdom from his father now Numa was a very peace-loving man in fact when his father died and and uh, actually I don't think he was dead yet but they were looking for a successor to the kingdom as I recall Numa was uh, was chosen as the one who should be the next Caesar the next king of Rome not the Empire yet but the city of Rome that was that was growing and expanding this was around 735 or so uh, BC and uh, Numa was pr- was approached and Numa said no I'm not going going to uh, I don't want that job. Now, if you've noticed politics today, most people or the people who are going to be selected to be the world's leader are usually wanting the job, right? Um, that seems to be the case now. Um, by the way, this is an aside, not related to Roman history, but do you know three times George Washington had to be approached to be convinced? to accept the presidency of the United States. Uh, things have changed a bit since then, but uh, we won't get into that um, today. Numa said, I don't really want to be the, uh, the emperor or the Caesar, the king of Rome, um, but he said, Let, let's see what the people say. He, he was he was uh, He was asked by the people then to be the king, and he said, let's see what the gods say. Of course, not a not uh, not a, a worshiper of the God of Heaven, but a pagan worshiper. He, he asked his various deities for signs and became convinced that, in fact, he was the one who was called to be on the throne at that time. Very interesting history. He was, um, he was a peace-loving man, and one of the first things that he did is he dissolved the guard that his father Romulus had had around him at all times. 300 soldiers. That had been his bodyguard, the Secret Service. Basically, um, Numa said, "I don't, I don't need these. I'm going to be um, at peace with the people. Why would I need a guard, right?" And Numa built a temple. It was called the Temple of Janus, and right there on the uh, the main road coming into the Forum from uh, from the northeast, there he he wrote he built this temple and. The temple of Janus, Janus is an interesting deity, or I put that in quotation marks, you understand, a Roman god, because Janus was one of the few gods that didn't come from the Greeks. This was a uniquely Roman god. He's the god of two heads. Um, he may, you might have seen his, his pictures before. Um, he's the god of beginnings and doors, of, of, of gates and openings and, and, and borders. He's the god of beginnings and ends. And um, this god was the god who was, in uh, in Numa's mind, would be the the god of peace, I guess you might say. Having established borders, there would be no more controversy. So in the temple of Janus, there were two doors, two gates. And um, what what the ceremony became is that when the Roman soldiers went out to war, they would have to go through the temple of Janus, in one side and out the other. Otherwise, they wouldn't have Janus' blessing. Now, you understand I don't believe in all of this, any of this. Um, This is historical data. The Romans believed this. The, The soldiers would have to go through the temple of Janus, and those doors would remain open as long as they were out fighting. But if the doors of the temple were closed, that meant the empire was at peace. The soldiers weren't out doing the business of war. Do you know during Numa's reign... Those doors remained shut. He was a peaceful ruler. One of the first things he did, besides dissolving the secret service, he also made peace with his neighbors. He was a king of peace. In fact, the, um, the uh, temple uh, was uh, inscribed, it's of course gone today, part of the ruins of the Roman Forum, but here's one of the coins that I believe it was Caesar. Uh, Nero yeah, Nero had, um, had made, and, and here you have a, a picture of the temple of Janus with the gates of Janus closed. A number of Caesars used this as sort of a propaganda thing, but Caesar Augustus, after re- defeating Cleopatra, closed those doors for one of the first times, only the second time um, since, the, since the end of, of Numa's reign. They were closed in th- t- 235 BC, they were closed again in 26 or 27 AD by Caesar Augustus. Very interesting history here. And here's the the God of Janus. And many people believe that it's Janus, the God of beginnings, which is the uh, namesake for the first month of the year, January, the beginning of the year, um, which still comes to us in English today. Um, Janus, the God of peace, chosen by the um, peaceful second king of Rome. But today, that's not what we're talking about. We want to talk today about the Prince of Peace. Jesus is called here in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The last title that is is used to describe Him is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. In fact, there are uh, many titles that are given here of Jesus, but it ends with this Prince of Peace. And if we read verse 7, it says, "...of the increase of His government and peace." There will be no end. We skip down, and it says the end of that sentence, or towards the end of that sentence, is from that time forward, even forever. Doesn't that sound good to you? Peace that lasts forever, a peace that continually grows and expands like the waves of the sea rolling across the sand, a peace that knows no end. Well, the Bible's clear that it's not now that there's that Prince of Peace. Not even in Isaiah's time was, was, he, was, he, was he at peace. In fact, the Bible's very clear. If we turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 we're going to read here for just a few moments in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to see how Jesus is described and it's not exactly peaceful the picture that we find here in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 it says war broke out where? In heaven. Of all places, the last place that you would expect war to be found is in heaven. The, the, the place that should be the most Uh, under the control of the God of heaven, the Prince of Peace. But the Bible says the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now I want us to just establish something here. Michael is another name for Jesus. Okay, now why do I believe that? Do you want to just see why I believe that real quickly? Can you keep your finger right here in in, in Revelation chapter 12? I want to be very clear. I do not believe, and I think we made it clear last week in our sermon about Jesus the Creator. I do not believe that Jesus is a created being. I do not believe that He is an angel. I believe He is God. And yet he is described in the Bible as being over the angels or the archangel. Let's, let's just keep a finger here in Revelation chapter 12 and look back in John chapter 5. We're going to look at three verses that together are going to show us that, uh, that Jesus is Michael. So we're going to look at John chapter 5 first of all. And we're going to read the prophecy of the resurrection that Jesus gave here in John chapter 5, and verse, we'll begin with verse 25. This is what it says. Are you there? Say amen. All right, John chapter 5, verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So whose voice will the dead hear? Jesus' voice, the Son of God, right? That's what it says. The hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Look with me now to 1 Thessalonians, the writing of the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as he describes the first resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to see um, that uh, at the second coming of Jesus, there is a voice, just like Jesus said that wakes the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to, uh, we're going to look at... Let's see, what verse is it here? My, um, verse 16. Um, let's start with verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a what? Shout. With the voice of... The archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. So whose voice on that resurrection morning is going to awaken the dead? Whose voice? According to this? The archangel, right? In John 5, we saw it's Jesus' voice that the dead hear and are raised. Here we see it's the archangel's voice who the dead hear and are raised. And we're going to look at one more verse in the book of Jude. Just before Revelation, so if you still have a finger there, it won't be hard to find the book of Jude, and um, there's only one chapter. So when you find the book, you found the chapter, and um, we're going to read about a an interesting um, debate that took place between two people who are at odds one with another, an argument over um, the body of Moses. And if we look here in verse 9, Jude 9, it says, Yet Michael the, what does it say? Archangel. Archangel. Are you following me? The archangel's voice raises the dead. Jesus' voice raises the dead. The archangel is called Michael. So therefore, when we read in Revelation 12 and verse 7 that there's war in heaven, Michael and his angels are fighting. That's speaking about Jesus. There's a controversy, a conflict that begins in heaven, a war between Michael and Lucifer, between someone who says, I will be like the Most High, and someone who is going to demonstrate the character of unselfish love. Do you understand the, the issues in the great controversy? It's not complicated. The issue in the great controversy is a God who says, I am loving and I am just, and we should all live unselfish lives, and a being who says, you are actually selfish, you are actually unloving, you are unjust, and you're expecting us to live an uh, uh, unselfish life while you enjoy our worship. What's God going to do about it? Well, the only thing God can do about it is not answer with some sort of a ultimatum from heaven. The only thing God can do about it is demonstrate the fact that He is actually the character that He says He is. And He actually is the character that He requests or expects of us. That's how God is going to answer the conflict. But here we are in in Revelation chapter 12. And verse 7, and we see that there was war in heaven, broke out between Michael, and it says in verse 8, they did not prevail, that's the dragon and his angels, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now this is the the bad news for planet earth. The good news is that Michael prevailed, amen? Amen. Michael was more powerful than Satan in heaven. So Michael had to uh, cast Satan out of heaven. But the bad news for us is that that, uh, Michael came here. Now, why did he come here? There are some questions, friends, that we will not know ultimately the answer to until one day we get to ask someone who does know, right? I don't have all the answers of why he came here, but it seems as though that the controversy between Michael and Lucifer began that it extended and it developed in part because of what we studied about last week, Jesus' role in creating this earth. The devil was jealous. Now, jealousy is foreign to the character of God. We'd already said, right, God's character is unselfish, right? Uh, jealousy is by nature patently selfish. So there's this conflict, contrast between the character of God and the jealous character of Lucifer who says, why can't I be doing what Jesus is doing? Why can't I be involved in the secret designs of the Trinity? Why can't I be there as, as God said, let us make man in our image? Why am I left out of this? After all, I'm next in authority to Jesus. Why can't it just be four of us? The problem is not that there was three, not four. The problem is that he was thinking selfish thoughts. Are you with me? If you could distill the whole plan of salvation into one simple concept, it's that God is working to bring us more into character with his unselfish life, while the devil is trying to bring us more into character with his selfish life. You see, the whole point of of the gospel is to change our hearts so that we're no longer so self-centered. The whole point of Satan's attacks and temptations and the world all around us is to make us self-centered. And the whole point of God coming to to live on this earth and to die in our place is to demonstrate to us what unselfishness, love, agape love, is really all about. The whole purpose of the great controversy lasting this long is so that the universe never forgets, so that we actually learn the lesson of what selfishness really looks like. You know, sometimes people are attracted to selfishness. It's remarkable to me. It's remarkable to me how we sometimes laud narcissism and egotism. We confuse it with self-confidence. But the reality is, that the great controversy is between selfishness and unselfishness. And the good news is we know who's going to win. We know because that great controversy began in heaven. Michael casts out the devil and his angels. He comes down to this earth, and, and we had to make the decision whether we would side with selfishness. And, and the temptation came to Eve. Oh, you will be like gods, knowing both good and evil. And all of a sudden, the devil knows how to, he knows how to massage your egos, doesn't he? All of a sudden, mankind, the crowning act of God's creation, the one Jesus had been involved in creating, the one who God said, let us make man in our image, all of a sudden, mankind began self-seeking just like Lucifer was self-seeking. And let me tell you, as soon as you begin self-seeking, you no longer have peace. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible says something like this in Proverbs. It says, only by pride comes contention. Self-seeking is the root of all conflict. Now, that's, that's convicting to me. Because sometimes, I remember when I was a kid, I really hated that verse because when I was fighting with my sister, that verse would come to my mind. And I would, of course, want to say, well, but it's because she's proud. <laughs> but the reality is, it's my problem, too. I have a problem with self seeking. I do. And when I think of peace and I realize that by very nature, my very nature is inimical to peace. It is impossible for me to have peace by my nature. I realize that I need a miracle. I need on a regular basis to have a miracle that comes from the Prince of Peace. Because only He, only He, can bring us lasting peace. This great controversy between Christ and Satan, it continues down to our day. It continued when Jesus was here on earth and and, and the the, the, the deceiver tried tried to find any way, any way possible that he could induce the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, to live selfishly. If he could only one time Succeed in making Jesus live selfishly for himself. He would have won the argument. God, you're really selfish. You just demand unselfishness of your subjects. And so he tempts Jesus. I'm sure he appeared to Jesus as an angel of light, not as the red dragon. By the way, boys and girls, we learned a few weeks ago about how the devil tempts us in many different ways. Most of the time... Are you listening to me, boys and girls? Most of the time, he doesn't come to us a red animal with a tail, a forked tail, and a pitchfork and horns. Most of the time, he comes to us seeming very nice. That's the way the devil came to Jesus. Like an angel sent from heaven to save him. Oh, Jesus, you're out here in the wilderness. You're so hungry. It's been 40 days since you ate. You must be starving. I just got a special message from heaven that you, are, you now can turn these stones to bread. There's no point in staying out here hungry when you can solve the solution. You have the solution right within your power. What was the devil trying to get Jesus to do? He was trying to get Jesus to use his divine power in a selfish way. When he tries to, he takes him above the kingdoms of the world And he says, look, Jesus, I'll give you all of this if you'll only bow down and worship me. What was he trying to induce Jesus to do? Trying for just a moment to get Jesus to live selfishly, to want the kingdoms, the power of the world. Now, the devil does have power in this world. Don't be mistaken. The devil does have power over the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus knew. That His kingdom was not a spiritual kingdom of buildings and marble and gold and palaces. To seek that kingdom would be selfish. Jesus knew that His kingdom was a kingdom of peace, unselfishness, that could only be established through the path to the cross, through living unselfishly, through living for others, not for Himself for not trying to avoid suffering and and hardship, but but going headlong into suffering and hardship so that others wouldn't have to suffer. You see, Jesus knew that He could not afford to live even for a moment selfishly. When Jesus was taken to the high top of the temple and and told, throw yourself down so that your angels can catch you, then people will know that you're really the Messiah. Jesus knew He couldn't do that. For to do so would be to try to attract attention to himself that the Father wasn't calling him to have. He was happy for 30 years in that carpenter shop to live unknown lives, doing good as a little boy and as a teenager and as a young adult. He didn't want the attention of because Jesus lived his whole life unselfishly. That's the whole point of his life here on earth, to demonstrate the character of, of God, So let's take our Bibles and just, let's just look at three ways in which Jesus is the Prince of Peace, shall we? The First, the peace that Jesus gives us is freedom from guilt. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. We're just going to move quickly through these. We're going to see how Jesus is the answer to our troubles as well. Um, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Jesus, um, the Bible says, this is Paul speaking, <laughs> and it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith. What does justified mean? What does justification mean? Some people like to say, and I, I think I've shared this before, that Justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned, right? Just put an as in there, just as if I'd, instead of justified, it's just as if I'd, right? It's just as if I'd never sinned. You see, it's it's just as if I'd never lived selfishly. That's what God's grace can do for us. That's what God's blood, the blood of Jesus, can do. It can make our our sins as white as snow. It can wash our sins away so that it can be just as if I'd never sinned. I can stand before God. Now, if, in fact, living selfishly is what causes conflict, unselfishness is what brings peace, then when we're justified, we also have peace being justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ one of my favorite authors wrote it this way she said that it the man who is at peace uh, no he who is at peace with god and man cannot be made miserable i like that that's peace isn't it when we're at peace with god and man we can't be made miserable listen This is is an indictment of myself sometimes. I'm going to say this very plainly. If I am miserable, i.e., I am not happy, it's nobody's fault but my own. Too often, I begin pointing fingers and thinking, other people are controlling my life robbing me of happiness, maybe making me unhappy, making me miserable. Go back and listen online to the sermon called To Be Happy. The reality is that I and I alone can make the decision to find peace in my soul and happiness in my life. Nobody has the God-given right or ability to control my happiness. He who is at peace with God and man cannot be made miserable. So peace begins with this concept of a freedom from guilt. Freedom from that guilt of the selfishness that I've lived in the past. I've been selfish. I've lived for myself. I've I've been self-seeking. I've demonstrated the character of Lucifer instead of the character of God. All of these things destroy my peace. But thank God, through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, I can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm thankful for the Prince of Peace today, aren't you? I'm thankful for the Prince of Peace. The second way that Jesus brings peace to us is by bringing us freedom from worry. In fact, Jesus said in in, in John chapter 14, one of the more commonly memorized and and, uh, known, familiar passages after John 3.16, Let not your heart be troubled, right? Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it are not so, I would, have, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for who? For you. For That's me. That's you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, which he has, right, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. You know, it's a universal constant, this business of worry. It's a universal experience that we have. You know, just recently I was teaching in my class at Southern beginning of the year on, on church history, and we were exploring the prophecies of Daniel because we have to understand what the Millerites understood. We're looking at Adventist heritage. And um, so I, I looked at this, class, at this uh, passage in Daniel chapter 2, and I I'll, I love the way Daniel did this, you know. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was... was uh, was honest in saying he didn't remember the dream, right? Evidently, that's what actually happened. He couldn't remember the dream. And he called the wise men, and the wise men said, well, maybe he's just testing us. Because he knows that if we can't tell him the dream, we probably can't come up with a good interpretation either, right? Maybe he really remembers the dream. That's what they were afraid of. If they really knew that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten, they probably would have made up anything. But they were worried. So you know the story how Daniel comes in, becomes involved and Daniel says, after he has a dream and God showed him what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, Daniel comes back to the king and he says, I can't do what you've asked me to do. <laughs> Why are you here then, right? But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And just in case, just in case, Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten what he dreamed about and wouldn't remember it even when he heard it, God told Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking about while he was still awake. Isn't that amazing? He says, you, O king, you, O king, were sleeping on your bed. You were not sleeping yet. You were falling asleep, and you came to thinking about what the future would have. Remember I told you it's a universal concept, isn't it? A universal experience, this worrying about the future. It's something that we often do, even though um, there may not be a good reason for it at any given time. We often are guilty of worrying. Nebuchadnezzar, king, 4,000 years ago, was worried about the future. Um, Me, today, in 2015, thank you, I have to worry about my batteries dying and things like that. Um, we worry about the future as well. And the fact of the matter is that it's a universal experience that we worry. We're afraid of what's going to happen. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know how the economy will fare. We don't know what will happen in politics and government. We live in a fairly stable world today in which even here in America, you wouldn't think we have too much to worry about, but we still worry, right? We still worry. And the Bible says there's a reason. There's a, there's a, there's a way that we can have freedom. From worry, Would you like to know about it? Philippians chapter 4 gives us this secret. Philippians chapter 4 tells us here that there's a, there's a way that we can have freedom from worry. And wouldn't you know, it's through the Prince of Peace. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading with verse 6. And this is what it says. Be anxious for how much? Nothing. Well, it must just be because that, you know, Paul thought all of the believers had all the money they needed, right? None of them had to worry about the budget or where their next meal was going to come from. Do you think that's the case? you think even if we have problems, Paul means be anxious for nothing. I think even if we have problems... We're exhorted to be anxious for nothing. Now, that's pretty hard to do. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. With what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. So this is basically what the Bible says. Don't worry about anything. It doesn't mean don't plan. It doesn't mean don't work. It says don't worry. Don't be anxious. Instead, do what? Tell God about it. Let your requests be known with, what does it say? Thanksgiving. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. When you let your request be known with thanksgiving, what you're saying is, God, you've worked in the past, you're still alive, you're going to work in the future, that's your business, I'm not going to worry about your business. That's what this verse is telling us. Let your requests be known with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. People are going to look at you and say, why are you so happy? Because I don't have anything to worry about. Don't you know the world we're living in? Yes, but I know the God that I serve. It reminds me of, I'll try to make this short. I sometimes have stories that come up and and I just have to tell them. I was in Moscow, and I was with a group of young people, and we were on a bus. Now, you have to understand, And the years soon after the fall of communism, there was a lot of still very communist thinking, you know? I mean, they had thought this way for generations, after all, and here we were on the bus, and now my students were not being rowdy. These were all high school seniors, and they were all, they were all rather quietly talking among themselves, but they were, they were happy, you know. And they were, this was their first time in Moscow, and they were looking and they were talking, and, and they weren't particularly pointing or talking about things. They were just, and every once in a while, someone might say things, something that was a little funny, and some of them would giggle, or there's just, you know, they were smiling people. We came to a bus stop, and this little grandma, you know, the whole, she, had, she was little, short, round grandma, babushka, you know, she was just like the dolls that you see from Russia. She, she comes, to the door of the bus and she's getting off the bus but before she gets off the bus she decides to teach my students a lesson now what lesson it was we couldn't understand because we didn't speak Russian but here she was and she was my my student Chris he was standing in the bus and he was a big guy like maybe six foot and pretty big guy and he was holding up on the strap with bar ahead of him and she had already stepped down on one of these steps you know to go out the door of the bus. And she's right under, and she came came probably to his belly button, you know. And she looked at him, and she started, she stuck her finger up in his face, and she started giving him a lecture that was the lecture for the ages. I mean, she was up one side and down the other. I had no idea what she was talking about. Chris had no idea what she was talking about, speaking in Russian. And he was trying not to laugh. Because it was sort of humorous, you know? I mean, he, I, I still remember this, this smile kept creeping onto his face, and he was trying not to smile. And everyone else was just sort of mouth open, gaping, like, what's going on? And after just reading him the riot act for quite a while, while the bus driver waited for her to get off the bus, she finally departed the bus, and the doors closed, and we kept on going down the street, and everything was quiet. And uh, we turned. There was one young lady who was on a, with us with a translator. We said, "What was she saying?" What was she saying? Well, she said. Basically, she told him. If you all were in your own country. You wouldn't behave the way you're behaving. And my students looked at each other. And they said yeah we would what does she mean well you have to understand under communism everyone was supposed to have everything in common that's communism right and if you started having something that other people had they were suspect that you were breaking the rules now remember, it was basically an informant state, so if your neighbor thought that you were breaking the rules, they would just tell the KGB you were breaking the rules, and you know there'd be a knock at your door, and you hoped it was the angel of death, not the KGB, because the KGB would haul you off, and it didn't matter if there's evidence or not, you might be in Siberia or a labor camp or somewhere else, because you were suspected of breaking the rules, not playing by the rules. And everybody learned for half a century to act as if they were very, very unhappy. Because happiness itself was a cause for suspicion. Nobody went out in public and smiled and giggled and laughed. Aren't you glad we live in a free world? What I'm saying to you this morning is if we were to apply Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Christians ought to be suspected by worldlings. Did you win the lottery? Did you find buried treasure? We ought to be so happy the world knows we're on to something. Amen? Let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace of God who passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Passes all understanding. Nobody will understand it unless they've experienced it. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, gives us freedom from guilt, freedom from worry, and finally, He gives us Freedom from sin and pain. Now, not yet, but the Bible promises in Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4 that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will indeed create a world in which there's no more suffering. There's no more suspicion. There's no more conflict and controversy. In fact, in that world, there will be no more selfishness. You want to be there? "...and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away." Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Why? Because He won't need any bodyguard or secret service. This is beyond the selfish world of sin. This is a world where unselfishness reigns. The Prince of Peace is now King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he says in verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I tell you, friends, Jesus is the Prince of Peace because He is the one who will bring about this new paradigm, this new world, this new earth. Now, how does this happen? The Pax Romana, friends, the Pax Romana was brought through bloodshed, through Caesars being egotistical and and narcissistic and demanding worship, or being worshipped at least. It wasn't the Caesars who went out and shed their blood. It was their minions that they commanded to do so the ones they hired for money, mercenaries, soldiers, gladiators. It was greed. That was how the Roman peace was established. In fact, as we look at the history of Rome, we see that Rome was full of people, dictators, rulers, who were so full of themselves. The best way to describe their life is pervasively selfish. When we, that's what happened. They didn't go out into battle themselves. They sent others into battle. They didn't become a king like, like Enuma, the, first, the second king, became king by, by the popular request of others and by making peace with everybody. They became king by, well, in the case of Julius Caesar, he was stabbed to death to make room for the next king, right? By his own friends. That's the peace of Rome. But the good news, friends, is that the Prince of Peace operates on a a totally different economy. The Prince of Peace operates on the economy of unselfishness. The Prince of Peace has the right to that title because he demonstrated himself to be the most unselfish of all. It's not unselfish for me to be poor when I never had any money. It is unselfish for him to go to the cross when he's God. Do you understand the extremes? He took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient not just to death, but to the death of the cross. From the highest position to the lowest position is the greatest demonstration of unselfishness. And so Jesus now, because He has earned the title, the right to be called the Prince of Peace, He offers us a promise of peace. Here that passes all understanding, but not only here, He promises promises us the hope of eternal peace. Peace in a world where there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain. Are you thankful today for the Prince of Peace? Are you thankful that no matter how much we could contemplate His condescension, His unselfishness we'll never completely grasp how great the love of God is toward us. Father in Heaven, today I just want to pray that You would help us to become more unselfish. Lord, that's what You're trying to do to save us in that unselfish kingdom. You want us to be Forgetting about ourselves and keeping our eyes on Jesus. Lord, forgive us for where we've thought about ourselves. Forgive us for where we've thought about <laughs> this life is about us, <laughs> this church is about us. It's a, forgive us for thinking selfishly and help us to be like Jesus. Help me, I pray, to be more like Jesus. Help me to have my life so transformed by a miracle of your grace that someday, I can be a part of an unselfish kingdom, a world where there's no more sin, no more self-seeking. Oh, Lord, help us to just contemplate the sacrifice you made to demonstrate your character, to be the Prince of Peace so that you can give that peace to us. We ask for it. We claim it. We want it. Forgive us for our sins. Take away our worry about the future and save us in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.